Yeah, yo, yo, this is Ferdinand in the microphone. I want to say to be respectful for all my people. Get paid for your pass from Panama City. Get paid for your pet episode 96. Welcome, everybody. This is a very special episode. I'm uh, doing this live. Uh, I'm not uh, on Skype with anyone. I'm actually with someone right now. And I am in Panama. And then today, uh, the guest is Matt Landau. So, Matt, welcome to the show and thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for coming. You should describe to people where we are right now. Yeah, we're in a really interesting spot. We are actually in a recording studio and there's uh, two Panamanian uh, pop stars, so yeah. to say. <laughs> kind of uh, up and coming rappers, I would say. Up and coming rappers who uh, who were kind enough to uh, to let us use the studio. So that's uh, that's really cool. Um, Matt, maybe you can introduce yourself. Like you've been in Panama for over ten years, right? Yeah, almost ten years. It's crazy to say that out loud. Uh, I'm originally from New Jersey. I went to school in Virginia, the University of Richmond. Um, I kind of decided that I didn't want the traditional New York City, San Francisco, Washington D.C. lifestyle that most of my friends were about to get into. Uh, so I kind of made my way down to Costa Rica, where I really got a taste for the tropics. I met an alumni from my school who had hit the Costa Rica tourism boom head on. Uh, he hired me right out of school and I really just found uh, my element. And in Costa Rica, everybody said, Matt, you should check out Panama. And I wandered down to Panama and I stumbled upon this little historic district of Casco Viejo, which at the time was way darker and dirtier and more dangerous than it is today. Um, and that was... It, as they say, the rest is history. I ended up um, kind of making my home here. Awesome. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, Casco Viejo, the, the area, a little bit more because you're actually doing some really cool work to help improve the neighborhood, make it safer and, and doing some awesome stuff. So we'll, we'll talk about that more. All right. But uh, let's first talk about the vacation rental business that you're in. Um, so basically, Matt is, is kind of like me for vacation rentals yep, right you have absolutely. a blog and you help people set up their vacation rental business so first let's talk about what is vacation rental what is it that's a good question i mean i think a lot of people are still struggling to define exactly what it means it's um it's certainly a subsect of travel lodging accommodations um, it fits into the peer-to-peer -peer lodging trend i would say um, it's if you were to distinguish it from Airbnb, for instance, I would say um, that vacation rentals represent um, a larger gamut of types of places to stay. Um, I think oftentimes vacation rentals are operated in maybe more professional way or a more businessy way than uh, an Airbnb, which maybe could be considered a little more casual, a little bit more of a hobby. Um, Airbnb is certainly a niche of the vacation rental movement or trend as I see it. Um, but for me, vacation rentals are um, actual properties that exist in vacation destinations from cities to mountains to beaches uh, that are sitting empty, whose owners or managers decide that they want to host travelers. They decide they want to compete with the hotels down the street. Uh, vacation rentals are categorically less expensive than having to book out a bunch of different ho hotel rooms. Vacation rentals are traditionally more spacious than a traditional um, type of lodging. And vacation rentals generally tend to uh, permit you to live a little bit more like a local and not a local who's like sleeping in someone's house necessarily, like you guys um, kind of Airbnb became kind of known for at the beginning. So vacation rentals, I would say lastly, are oftentimes entire units or entire houses, standalone businesses. I think actually the standalone nature of the real estate itself might be a, one of the other characteristics. But as you can tell, they're not defined yet. I think we're all still working on trying to come up with a clear mm -hmm. definition. Right, and I think one of the biggest differences between Airbnb and, and running a traditional uh, vacation rental space is that um, you, don't, you don't have a, a marketplace, right? You, you create a website for your own space and you do your own marketing, uh, you build your own infrastructure, correct? That's correct. Um, but also vacation rental owners and managers are starting to use Airbnb. So Airbnb would be one of those channels 
Right. A lot of vacation rental owners don't have their own website, believe it or not. They use our equivalent, which would be VRBO mm-hmm. or HomeAway or VacationRentals.com or HolidayLettings.com. Um, I think the, the general concept is very similar to what Airbnb hosts um, deal with on a regular basis. I tend to find that vacation rental owners oftentimes have built out their businesses online, such as a website and an email list and stuff like that, more frequently than Airbnb mm-hmm. hosts necessarily have. And I think that just might be correlated to the fact that it's a more professional uh, mindset as opposed to what might just be considered a hobby, would you more or less? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's people who are crushing it with Airbnb for a living yeah. now, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, you know, there are people who are doing Airbnb truly as a business. Uh, and, and some people uh, do it more as a hobby, like you said, you know, to meet other people just renting out the spare room or or uh, their house temporarily, like when they were on holiday. So I think you're right. It's probably people who have a more business-minded approach to renting out a house. Um, VRBO. I've, I've heard about VRBO. It's owned by HomeAway, right? Yeah. What's You use VRBO, yeah? I actually don't use it anymore. I'm kind of free of the the listing sites, but I used it when I was getting started and almost all vacation rental owners and managers use some of right. these listing sites. Okay. So what would you say is the difference between VRBO and Airbnb? Because they're, they're sort of similar, right? They're both an online marketplace for accommodation. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a whole lot that's different other than the fact that Airbnb has done a better job of building a culture around the types of people that host and the types of people that travel. Whereas VRBO would be more of a a, a traditional classified type website. Um, the types of membership fees that you can pay vary. HomeAway as a company has been in the news recently, got acquired by Expedia. They've been changing around the way that they charge their hosts, the way that they charge their travelers. Um, I think in general, a VRBO owner um, is traditionally using VRBO as one of their lead sources, whereas maybe Airbnb hosts only use Airbnb. Um, and what we found is that whichever bucket you tend to fall into, you arrive at a moment in that business when you say, okay, I'm good at this, I'm making money doing this, and I'm relying on one company for all of my success, I need to diversify. And that's when you begin looking at another listing site or mm-hmm. several other listing sites. And then the next level beyond that is, okay, now that I've diversified on my listing sites, what else can I do? What happens if all of these listing sites disappear tomorrow? And that's when I kind of come in and begin helping people understand the general ecosystem of online business, really. Right. And that's where you would create a website for, for your uh, accommodation. Now, you know, when I think of building a website for your accommodation, I, you know, my, my good feeling says that that would make sense if you have a whole building with multiple apartments or you have multiple listings across town. But is it worth it putting in a little effort just for one apartment? Yeah, that's another really good question. I can't say I have the definitive answer on any of these. Um, but what I have observed is that when you're building one website, it's not necessarily, um, it shouldn't get you too overwhelmed to begin with because there are platforms that can help you, allow you to build a website in two hours. You've seen them like Wix, uh, Squarespace. There's even these types of platforms that are designed specifically for vacation rental owners like MyVR. Um, one rooftop is another one. Uh, so the the dauntingness of it, of, of letting a website, quote unquote, intimidate you, uh, is, is quickly becoming a, sort of an obsolete concern. That being said, most people don't build the website so that they can begin building tons of organic traffic and doing search engine optimization and all these things that um, big businesses do. A lot of these vacation rental owners and managers are building a website because one, they know that if you're running a business in this century, you need a website. It's just a de facto, it's almost like a business card in a way. Um, two, when people find your property, let's say on VRBO, and they find that it's called, let's say, Matt's Villa. Uh, well, let's use the name of my vacation. It's Los Cuatro Tulipanes, right? <laughs> they find the name and then they Google it. That's something that we all do in all levels of, of our exploration these days. We Google something that we'd like to learn more about. If you don't have a website, you are very clearly missing out on that chance to reassert your authority, your, you know, what makes you unique, etc. Um, so if nothing else, I think people are using it just kind of as a way to set themselves apart from the competition, make a very simple, a very clean, a very beautiful 
website with beautiful photos and a way to contact the host. Um, and in that sense, a lot of people are doing it for one property. And I would not really recommend um, spending another couple months without one just because these days you need every bit of advantage that you can. Would people also use that website to accept bookings or would they use their website to then, uh, to then send people to a listing site where people would then book? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I should state now that um, there's all this information that comes to someone who's looking to diversify and get their, build their business. Um, we have built a very clean framework that's four stages. We call it the four stages of listing site independence. Each of these items that we're talking about fit very clearly into one of those stages. So someone who's thinking about diversifying should not get intimidated into thinking that all of this stuff is required on day one. So the website would be a wonderful example of something that falls into stage three. Um, a piece of booking software that permits you to take an online booking. That would be something that falls towards the end of stage three, if not the beginning of stage four. The beauty of this little framework is that when you look at it, and you fill out the self-grader and really understand what stage you do fall into and there's nothing right or wrong about where you fall, you know the next steps. And you're not trying to get booking software before you even have a website or you're not trying to build a website before you even have a logo or a name for your vacation rental businesses. I'll bet you how many, what percentage of Airbnb hosts have a name for their property, would you say? Very few. And Very how few. am I, what is yours name? What is yours called? I don't have a name for my, for my apartment. So if I came across it on Airbnb, how would I, what would I search for? What would I try to find? Like what keywords would I be using? No identifiers, huh? No, I guess uh, on Airbnb, the way that people find uh, the listings is, uh, I think typically they will look at the location first and then it's kind of like zoom on that map area and yeah. they see what listings pop up on the, on the Airbnb uh, search results. Mm -hmm. And they look at the titles and they look at the pictures and. You know, I think that's how people select their Airbnb uh, units. Um, but there are some Airbnb hosts who who like to brand their place, right? So yeah. they call it something. And then some actually also have a little website. Yep. Um, typically, you won't be able to book uh, the, the, list, the the place on, on that website. It would just be like sort of a, a showcase yeah. uh, thing. But uh, I'd say it's very 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 small percentage probably less than one percent one of our, one of our members actually her name's lulu i think her name is and she her her airbnb unit is called the secret garden if i'm not mistaken and um a lot of vacation rental owners and managers are the exact same way they list their property as like unit 30a and to me as a traveler that means absolutely nothing like that is not sexy that's not memorable that's very just Blah. Um, the moment that people do begin to look at these other stages of listing site independence is the moment they say, wait a minute, we don't have a name for this place. And they sit down with their partner or their family, they have a glass of wine, and they come up with a beautiful name. And that's the first stage of building a real business. It's hard to say that you've got a sustainable business without a name. That's a, a really good point that you're making. And uh, that makes me think, uh, you know, if when you think about conversion on Airbnb, right? This search snippet is very important and the, the first picture is very important and then the title is very important. And I totally agree with you. A lot of people misuse the title or they don't use it optimally. You know? And, and I've, I thought a lot about how do you use that title? Like what should, what should you put there in order to get more clicks to your actual listing, right? And it's, um, it's like you said, it shouldn't be very factual and it shouldn't include any information that you can see elsewhere in the snippet. And so I'm thinking, you know, I, I always advise people to highlight the best aspect of the listing. So if your location is really great, you can say something like perfect location or you can, you can uh, focus on a specific uh, demographic. Like, for example, in my place, I like to host couples and my apartment is very well suited for couples because it has two bedrooms on opposite sides of the apartment so there's a lot of uh, privacy and so you know i mentioned in my title that it's that it's a couple's place mm -hmm. right and saying, <laughs> saying so you're saying well you could brand your place give it a name and use that as a title now and i'm thinking would that increase the conversion would that get me more clicks do you think i i don't know about more clicks i think if you were to change it and track whether or not your inquiry uh, your views to your page views or whatever the metric that you 
increases or decreases or stays the same, that would be a pretty clear way of saying whether or not this worked. But I can say um, there was a report done by Google maybe 10 years ago called the zero moment of truth. And they define, they determine that someone who's shopping, quote unquote, online nowadays needs to see a product 12 times. There need to be 12 touch points in tips in tip, in tip, before, tip, before they buy it or whatever it is. So the way that I would, um, the context that I would put the, the naming thing in is if they see the name of your property in your uh, headline, even if they don't click it, that counts as one, mm-hmm. right? And if they go Googling online or they find a, a blog post that you've written on someone else's website or they go to your, child, um, your get paid for your pad and they see the name again, these are all little deposits in your little social bank to the point that they've seen it so many times, like, gosh, this guy's everywhere. And you could even use like Google remarketing, uh, Facebook remarketing to begin showing people these names over and over and over again. And I have to believe Google and that, that correlation between the amount of times that someone sees the name of your property and the amount of times that they actually support your business is directly related. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. So you're saying, for example, my podcast is called Get Paid for Your Pad. My book is called Get Paid for Your Pad. Should you- would you suggest that I use get paid for your pad in my title to my Airbnb listing? I don't know about that. If people recognize you well enough and this is the get paid for your pad guys pad, <laughs> perhaps. It sounded the way you described it to me sounded like it was a swingers uh, apartment, two couples. <laughs> so maybe you got some sort of couples like love love <laughs> nest verbiage you could fit in there. I don't know. I'm, the, I'm not the person to ask about naming. Uh, but I'll bet you if you looked through all of your testimonials, your guest reviews, you'd find some really, really great words and phrases that people use over and over again that sets your property ab- uh, apart from the rest. Yeah, no, that's it. that's definitely true. I actually recommend, uh, I always recommend Airbnb host. If they if their description or their title is not very good or the captions on their pictures, I always tell them, just look at what your guests yeah. are saying about your place. Because it's funny, uh, other people are sometimes better at selling or describing or totally. you know, picking out the highlights of your place than, than you would do yourself, right? That's and even an interesting in my, point. Even in my case, I've had my rentals here for almost 10 years. And I know my neighborhood like the back of my hand, right? I think. However, I have a guest who comes in two months ago and he says, you know, this neighborhood is really incredible. It, it's like New Orleans 100 years ago. And I'd never heard it described that way, but it's, it's interesting how he allows someone who knows what New Orleans is like to envision this neighborhood before they've got here. And I now use that in all my marketing verbiage because he provided the perspective I so desperately lack. Yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. And it is, right? Neighborhoods like New Orleans. Well, I've never been to New Orleans, well, so I, don't, I can't New say. New Orleans is like Casco Viejo 100 years in the future. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so let's talk, let's talk about your actual uh, business. So you came down to Casco Viejo in um, about 10 years ago, you said? Yeah. And uh, you invested in, in a property and you started renting it out. How did it go? I'm sure there's lots of obstacles, challenges that you had to... Yeah, I, I learned everything the hard way. Um, at the time, there was nowhere else to stay in Casco. Nowhere nice. There was a hostel, which was like $8 a night. Still there. Casco Viejo. Hospedaje Casco Viejo. Um, so you kind of had to stay with us if you came to the neighborhood at the time. And... When I say we, my business partner at the time, we were just out of college. We had no experience, uh, really, anything hospitality related other than staying at hotels when we traveled. We had no experience online business or marketing or anything like that. Um, so we <laughs> we made every mistake in the book, and it was a, a total nightmare for a, a number of years. I mean, we knew what good travel was. We knew that if we could, uh, if we could do one thing right, it would be to take really, really great care of people. Uh, we had a wonderful little staff that made sure that the properties themselves were always in tip-top shape. At the time, it was an existing fleet of vacation rentals. It was called Los Cuatro Tulipanes. When I purchased the business from um, some guys from Holland, uh, we began acquiring more units into that pool. Um, but for a good sort of five years, we were the only place to stay. We got our degrees in hospitality and vacation rental business. Um, and I would not say that we are now experts by any means, but when you do something the hard way, you just end up eating it, sleeping it, breathing it, you know, it inside it out. 
and you're constantly learning new things and you're trying to take advantage of stuff that you've you know done in the past and you build up a pretty good little portfolio of tactics and that's more or less what represents Los Cuatro Tulipanes today which is uh, still the oldest existing luxury accommodations here in Casco and we still have wonderful guests from mostly the United States, Canada and Europe who come and stay from anywhere for um, three to six days and sort of jaunt around Panama and live like a local here in Casco. And how does it work from a legal perspective? Like, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> do, do you need to like register a business? No, or... it's, it's illegal. It's, it's illegal it's, in Panama. Yeah, short term right. rentals are illegal. And, and this is an interesting subject, actually, because this is very relevant in a lot of other places. And, you know, in, in Europe, for example, in lots of cities, the, the, the local authorities are cracking down on, on the short stay rental uh, stuff. So how, how is it here? Like, have you had a lot of problems with it or? No, but we might now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't think that the authorities here um, listen to podcasts in general or speak English. So I think we're safe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I've also heard that Panamanians are very lazy. <laughs> no, we love Panamanians. But obviously, obviously, that's not true. That's just a stupid uh, Misnomer. Thing that Costa Ricans say. It's a, it's a, it's a thing about the tropics. It's very easy here to just kind of relax. Yeah. Everything here is relaxed. Um, no, it's, it's the same issue that a lot of um, cities are dealing with and communities are dealing with right now. Um, I know exactly why it's an issue. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody that this is a new industry. This is a new niche, a new way to travel that needs to be regulated, and it cannot just be let run like the wild wild west because these catastrophes these emergency stories we read about here and there are going to begin getting worse and worse and worse and ultimately if you really want the industry to evolve in a holistic in a sustainable way you need some sort of definition of what does it mean to be a vacation rental that's why at the beginning i said i don't really even know just yet we need some level of regulation we need some level of um you know taxation we are operating businesses. We should be paying taxes and charging travelers taxes. Um, here in Panama, uh, like a lot of things, the regulation uh, is not nearly as strict as in New York, for instance, which we just saw in the news a couple of days ago, um, where you'll get a fine if you're simply listed on the site. Um, thankfully, another benefit of being independent of these listing sites is that we're not sitting there for a, an authority to go down and come knocking on our door and say, you're fined. Um, we have our own marketing that sits outside of those sites. And if anything, it's a little bit more difficult to find us than it is to go down a list and, uh, on a classified site. Um, but yeah, it's one of these very real problems. I understand it because um, I've lived in buildings where other people are renting out their properties. And if it's not done in a responsible way, it's annoying and potentially very dangerous. Random people walking into the apartment, bringing home all kinds of characters, leaving the door open. Um, I think part of that is just that the natural evolution of this type of accommodation is yet to really mature. The other half is that it needs an actual framework. It needs um, regulations and laws in place. And I think the destinations that are doing that well, um, Arizona would be a good example, that has basically outlawed the banning of short-term housing. Ah. The legislation of Arizona has said nowhere in Arizona may you ban short-term rentals. Um, but there's also specific restrictions in how you go about getting your licenses. You in um, Amsterdam, you said that it kind of sucks because there's such a limited amount of those permits. But does it work, at least for the ones that do have permits? Yeah, they released 800 permits. The one thing that I don't like about it is they, the way that they release them. Which was friends and family or something? Well, pretty much, I think. I mean, <laughs> it was basically, I didn't even know they were handing them out. And then suddenly uh, I, I hear that 800 permits have been handed out and you know, I, nobody really knows uh, where they went. Yeah. Um, but I, my guess is that the people who were close to the regulators, they knew about it. And you know, yeah. these, these uh, permit, permits are obviously very uh, valuable because uh, you know, it's 800. I think there's 10,000 Airbnb listings in Amsterdam. So... You can do the math. Most people don't have one. Um, and then if you don't have a permit, then you can only do it 60 days per year. So that's the regulation in, in Amsterdam right now. And also Airbnb collects uh, tourist tax right. from, the, from the guests. Right. So as a host, you don't even see it. 
uh, it's collected uh, directly from the, from the guests. So that's that's kind of like an incentive for the city to allow it, right? Because now they're making money on it. Absolutely. And so I think that's a, that's a good thing, you know, because if you have a tourist tax, I'm not a big fan of taxes, but, you know, if you have one, then at least it should be consistent. And, and you and I talked the other night. Um, a destination that does embrace this style of travel is actually a very attractive thing to me. If I'm going to go traveling and I know that one destination um, really welcomes vacation rental guests and another another destination does not, I'm most certainly going for that one that does. Not just because I can get to stay in a vacation rental, but for me it really it represents a greater ideology of we embrace the future. We embrace what people want, not how the old boys clubs define hospitality. Uh, and I think if there's any kind of legislators or, or politicians out there listening to this, it's a wonderful opportunity right now. There are very few destinations around the world, very few tourism ministries that have fully embraced their Airbnb-ness, you know, or their vacation rental-ness up front in a, in a propaganda sort of way. And I have to think that's an attractive thing to the, the future of travelers, no? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the reason that I'm here is partly because of that, you know, because it's getting pretty hot in Amsterdam. You know, I've, I've been hearing stories of the police going around the neighborhoods, closing down uh, Airbnbs, literally like putting a, a lock, a different lock on the door, which is uh, which is terrible. Uh, so one of the reasons I'm here is to kind of like seek out these places that you're talking about. And uh, now you mentioned that officially it's illegal here in Panama, but uh, it seems like the local authorities are a little bit less proactive about you know closing people down than they are in Amsterdam. So I feel a little bit safer here. <laughs> but, it is. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, and, and there are places where um, Airbnb is legal, I believe. Uh, but the conditions vary. Um, I know, for example, in Chicago, it's it's fine, but you have to get like a business license from the from the local authorities. Um, and you know, it's one of the things that I'm doing right now is re- sort of researching and visiting places uh, to see how 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 the situation is with, with regards to uh, short-term rentals. I I'm, uh, would be very curious to hear what you find. Uh, all I can say is that uh, shared accommodations and vacation rentals are very clearly something that people want on a demand side. And it's very clear, like in your and my case, it's very easy to be on the supply side as well. You've got an empty property. You want to spiff it up and host guests at something that supply is not an issue, demand is not an issue. And like all the Uber wars that are going on right now, I don't think anything will ultimately stop the movement. Um, there will maybe some speed bumps or, or municipalities that manage to ban it for a certain period of time. But if you are planning your destination's attractiveness 5, 10, 20 years down the line, there's simply no way that you can ignore this sort of subject. Absolutely. Totally agree. It's, it's a movement that cannot be stopped. They can resist it. Uh, but you know, I don't think it's, it's going to go away and uh, shouldn't go away. Because like you said, there's demand, there's supply. And it's also a more efficient way to use space, right? Especially in big cities like New York, for example, and even in Amsterdam as well, there's lots of places that are empty, you know, and people don't rent it out because they don't want to have a long-term renter in their place because it's hard to get them out when they want to use their house again. So short-stay accommodation makes the use of space more efficient. Same thing for when you go on holiday. You know, when you're out of your house for two weeks, well, it's a waste of resources to have that house empty. Yep. When you have a spare room that you're not using, again, it's it's kind of a waste of space. So yep. I think also it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's it's, it's it connects people as well. You know, you I mean, in the last ten years, you must have met hundreds, if not thousands, of people from all around the world, and I'm sure a lot of them you you know you might still be in contact with, yep. or you might have even made some friends. Yep. Yeah. One hundred percent agree with you. Um, the people that are attracted to our neighborhood, I'm generally like a similar type of person to me in the general thing. But the people who are attracted to our neighborhood and to live in a vacation rental for a couple of days, it's the exact same way that I like to travel when I go abroad. 
Uh, this is the kind of neighborhood that I like to see. So like you said, the, the attraction in terms of making new connections is certainly there. But again, it needs to be regulated until it is very cleanly regulated and defined. Um, I think the industry is really stuck. And if you look at it sheerly from a, uh, an experience standpoint, um, we need vacation rental owners and managers to define what the accepted vacation rental experience is like. And we need hosts, uh, sorry, travelers to understand and agree on what that experience is like. The problem that we have right now is that because it's so new, there's a gigantic gap. And that could be a good gap on the side of the host. That could be a bad gap on the side of the host. But until there is just across the board universal rules, for instance, um, when you stay at a vacation rental, you will not have to go and like wash the, the sheets and clean all the dishes when you leave. I find that to be very offensive when I stay at a four or $500 a night vacation rental and I'm asked to clean the sheets. That's not something at a hotel would ever ask. That's not something I'm willing to pay for with my hard-earned money. There are plenty of vacation rentals that do that. Um, they have their arguments, and I respect those arguments. But until there's some global uh, definition of what it means to be a good, responsible, authentic host, um, I think the industry is stuck. Yeah, that makes a little sense because, um, uh, you know, if I look at Airbnb hosts, some of them are doing it very, very professionally and they're providing an amazing, outstanding uh, guest experience where some people are just kind of like, hey, here's the key and, uh, right. you know, I'll see you later. Right. And I don't think it's like it's not my responsibility nor your responsibility, nor is it our right to define what that answer is. But it needs to be a shared vision that a lot of hosts and managers from all around the world and travelers sit down at a table, essentially, sit down at one place and define what does it mean. And I think until that happens, there's just gigantic fluctuations in what you could be receiving. And have you had uh, like a negative vacation rental experience yet? Uh, I have uh, a couple as a, as a host. The most remarkable one is when a couple from Canada they came and their expectation was, I think, a five-star hotel experience. Yeah. And they left the next day. They left the next morning. And, you know, I'd hosted over 200 people at the, at the time. And I'd never have somebody leave. You know, I had some minor comments sometimes. But overall, it, it was almost always like a, a great experience. And, and the guests were always really happy. So I was very, very surprised to get an email saying, hey, we just left your apartment. This is completely unacceptable. And the things that he mentioned, you know, were, for example, he said there were some loose wires. Now, the only loose wire that I have is, you know, there's a, I have a fridge and there's no socket <laughs> near the fridge. So there's, there's like an extension cord running, you know, for two meters. Uh -huh. Yeah. And that's the, the loose wiring that he's talking about. Oh yeah, I mean, if you if you are expecting a five star hotel experience, then obviously you're gonna get disappointed. But the good thing is that I did actually learn something from this experience because all those minor things that he pointed out, you know, when I took a look at them, I actually did manage to improve some things. Perfect. So, and also it made me realize that you know that it's very important to create an accurate representation of what people can expect of the experience right so for example one of the other things he mentioned was you know that it was a little loud uh, at night which is which is true because my neighborhood is very vibrant and that's you know i think that's one of the the highlights of the neighborhood you know you can literally walk out of the house and you know, there's tons of bars cafes there's all sorts of life going on but you know it, it is true that if you are a light sleeper you know, you might have a little trouble sleeping at night sometimes. So now I mentioned that in my listing because mm. I don't want people to have a bad experience. So if you're, if you're looking to sleep well and you're a very light sleeper, then my place is probably not the perfect fit for you. And I also think that um, Airbnb is wonderful because it's, it's almost its own product. People understand that when they're signing up, well, most people, not these ones, obviously. When they're signing up to stay at an Airbnb, it's going to be someone's home when the person is not home. In some cases, they're running it professionally. But either way, you're in the middle of a neighborhood or your room is in the middle of another apartment. When Airbnb hosts do begin exploring other marketing channels uh, and they do dip their toes into the greater world of vacation rentals, uh, they're going to find something very interesting. And that is 
when when it's not just an Airbnb product, when now it's a literally a, an accommodation that is competing with a hotel down the street. A lot of vacation rental owners and managers, they look at all the other vacation rentals around in their area and they say, okay, I'm on par or a little bit better than all these people. Great. What the traveler at this point in the game, as our industry is so new, is thinking, because they've never stayed in vacation rentals before, is is this property that I'm going to stay in as good as the best hotels I've ever stayed at in the world? And maybe, you know, someone like this person um, who had never stayed in that type of accommodation before, this is not five-star lodging like they were expecting. And it's not to say that they're right or wrong. It's just to say that vacation rental owners and managers really need to understand that they're part of the greater hospitality game. We're competing for the exact same dollar depending on the level of luxury, as the nicest places in town. And there's a great responsibility with that. Yep, absolutely. Now, what I'd like to talk about is what's the top number three lessons that you've learned in your, uh, in your hosting career so far? Like you've been doing it for 10 years, you're teaching other people how to, you know, how to be great at hospitality. So I'm really curious if you, if you had to mention three things. Wow, that's a good question. Okay, number one would be not to forget that the relationship that you form with a guest can be one that lasts and one that returns on that investment for many, many years to come. So a lot of people, when they book someone in their property, uh, they take an amazing, good, they do an amazing job of taking great care of that person. And that person leaves with such a spectacular experience. But then everything stops. They totally drop the ball. They don't connect at all. They don't reach out at all. And basically, unless a vacation rental owner and manager is sending out like a promotion, we got specials this month, they don't say anything. And that for me is a big lost opportunity because as vacation rental owners and managers, we are forming spectacular relationships with our guests. There's no reason why we can't continue those relationships but after the guest leaves, not just uh, in case the guest wants to come back, but when the guest wants to refer you to a friend they say oh you know three years ago i was in panama i can't remember the weird spanish name of those rentals let me look in my inbox because matt emails me every couple months with updates about uh the neighborhood so uh for example so the biggest lesson um number one that i would say is is not for not to drop the ball not to look at this exclusively as a quick buck but as a long-term sustainable business and if you do a good job of nurturing that relationship after they have left, you will eventually arrive at a moment that you don't have to worry about new leads because so many people are coming back and referring you um, year after year. And that's very fortunately the position that we're in at this point uh, at Los Cuatro Tulipanes, the name that nobody can pronounce nor spell. <laughs> um, the second big thing that I've learned about vacation rental hosting would be to really embrace the role of the underdog. Uh, a lot of people think that getting professional, quote unquote, means that they have to behave like a big chain hotel. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, what I've found is that if you really embrace the role of, hey, Jasper, I'm just like you. I'm a young guy. I've got properties here in Casco Viejo. Sometimes uh, we have problems that we have to deal with. Sometimes the electricity goes out in our neighborhood. Sometimes the, the guys outside are blaring their music until like one in the morning. And I have to go and like pay them to turn it off. Sometimes people get robbed if they wander away into the ghetto. Unfortunately, um, I'm going to do my absolute best, but there are certain areas where I simply don't have control. And I think when vacation rental owners and managers speak from their heart in that sense, don't try to put off this tough corporate facade. Say, you know, I'm a real person. I'm running this business. It's my livelihood. I'm going to do my absolute best to make sure, sure that you have a great stay. But, and this is like these kind of little emergencies always pop up, uh, in the case of your Canadian couple, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, every other weekend, that group has a party outside and it drives me nuts. When I stay in the apartment, I sometimes have trouble sleeping. I've put some earplugs in the thing. And in the end, if you really can't deal with it, I totally understand. I'll take care of your night at a hotel, something like that. So I think I'm really embracing that role of the underdog that we are an independent property manager or property owner. We're not the big, bad hotel down the street. Travelers get that and they respect that, I think. And it's actually a secret weapon that a lot of owners and managers, I think, could be utilizing a little bit more. My third 
And final biggest thing that I've learned would be that as vacation rental owners and managers, you need to be thinking about building something that lasts. And I think this is probably true about other areas of small business, but what I can say pretty concretely is that if you're relying any if you're relying on any given platform too much and that platform was to disappear tomorrow and you'd be out of business, then your business probably isn't really a business. It's probably just a little hobby, a little wave that you're riding. Rather, if you look at Airbnb and you look at VRBO and you look at your own website and you have enough legs of this table in the case that one of them is chopped out from under you, you can still survive. In the far extreme example, if you've done a good enough job nurturing your former guests, you don't need any forms of new guests. Um, but this mentality of building something that lasts and of thinking about the long run, if you're deliberate in the steps that are required to get to that long-term success, everything becomes a lot more clear. You don't have to freak out that one guest canceled last minute. Why? Because you're looking at the long-term goal. Uh, if you're thinking about your specific plan for the next three years, you don't have to worry that something happened on any given day or month. Rather, because you're doing the right thing for the long term. Uh, the moment that owners and managers turn that corner and recognize that this is not something that they're just looking to make a quick buck on, this is something that they want to pass down to their children, A, it helps them make a much more valuable asset, and B, it's so much more of an enjoyable experience takes a lot of the stress and a lot of the tough decisions out of the equation. So those are three things that I think if a newcomer to the vacation rental space embraced on day one, they would be legions ahead of any other competition that's just getting started. Yep. I think uh, great, great advice. Uh, the main takeaway for, for me in terms of uh, the next few weeks is, uh, you know what, I've probably hosted 300 groups. Um, you know, the average group size, I would say, is somewhere between three and four. And so that's, we're talking about a thousand people. And you're absolutely right. Like, that's, that's a lot of potential business that I don't do anything with. And it's not just those people. It's also their friends, their extended networks. Yeah. And if you wanted to get really um, advanced, you could break those former guests down into certain groups, types of travelers. Are they uh, two couples on romantic weekend? Are they business folks? Are they a family? Come up with your several different uh, personas. Distribute each of those former guests into one of those buckets. And then all of a sudden you can provide so much more relevant information to them as the years go by. It's not just like, hey, here's Jasper's overall newsletter about Amsterdam. Rather, it's, hey, remember your couples weekend last year? this weekend is Valentine's Day or next month is Valentine's Day or we have a special flower fest or something like this that appeals specifically to those couples, the more relevant you can be in that type of direct uh, marketing, I think the more sustainable the business becomes. Right. And, you know, one question I have is you're probably not reaching out to your guests that often, right? It's not like, like a weekly or, you know, because you know how uh, these days, when you visit some websites, like you get emails almost every day, right? right. And so I imagine you're, you're probably not going to spam people with, uh, you know, daily updates. Yeah, yeah you, you don't want to bother people. Um, you most certainly don't want to um, lose that permission because in staying with you or perhaps even in inquiring if they've checked the box, they're giving you permission to email them. When you do anything outside of the appropriate, you begin to lose that permission or that trust. And you also don't want to waste your opportunity, right? If you're doing it every single week, by week number three, they're going to stop opening your emails. However, if you do it every quarter or if you do it every six months, I don't think there's a specific rule of thumb. Um, but if you're doing it in a thoughtful way, in a really considerate way, and again, most importantly, in a relevant way, something that really matters to them, um, for me, that type of email marketing is pound for pound the best investment that you can make for your business. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about your actual properties. What's, what's it called again? Because it's a <laughs> difficult name. Los Cuatro Tulipanes, the four tulips. And it's a business that was originally started by some Dutch guys. They and, love their and, tulips. And then that's why it's called tulips. What's okay. up with that? You didn't change the name. No, but why do you guys like tulips so much? 
Well, uh, you know, uh, we used to trade tulips on the stock market. Is that uh, right? Like in uh, four years ago, it was like a huge crisis when the price of the tulips uh, went uh, completely through the roof. And then it, after that, it crashed. But uh, yeah, tulips uh, play a big part of uh, in, in Dutch culture. You know, yeah. we, have, we have a lot of them. We export a lot of tulips. So um, also the number one tourist destination in Holland is called the Kokohof. And tulip mecca. I've, I've actually never been, but apparently it's it's pretty cool. Tulips everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's just like fields of like tulips and cool. other flowers, and there's all sorts of like, you know, uh, images that are being like recreated with the flowers and stuff. Cool. So. I think the tulip is definitely is a Dutch symbol. Yeah. So um, no, I just kept the name because I thought it was cool. I don't really know a whole lot about tulips. In fact, I know now more than <laughs> you just mentioned to me more than <laughs> I ever knew before. Uh, but we kept the name. It was a little fleet of vacation rentals at the time. We made it a little bit more professional. We began building it out a little bit. Um, they are fully furnished apartments, luxury rentals based in what used to be a convent. Um, of a building. The walls are this old stone, several hundred year old walls. And each of the kitchens are fully furnished. They're not furnished like someone's house, I will say. Um, if someone's coming and looking to do a complete like Thai meal, <laughs> we're not going to have all the equipment for that. Whereas I think that's an area where uh, Airbnb really excels because act- people are actually living in that thing and they've got the, the sriracha sauce in the fridge or they've got like the whatever. I don't even know. Um, but our tulipanes rentals have the basic kitchen furnishings if you'd like to make yourself breakfast if you'd like to go to the amazing fish market and buy fresh langostinos or octopus or something like that you can make your little meal in your kitchen Um, the thread counts and all those little amenities that are typically associated with luxury are all there they're spacious uh, and they range in size from small little studios to three bedroom penthouse units we have seven of them in total they're all nightly rentals. We very rarely have someone staying more than about a week. And we have an absolutely amazing staff of neighbors um, who I've employed since the very first day who take care of cleaning and maintenance and just general smiling. All the apartments are in the same building? Yep. All the apartments are in the same building with one exception, um, which is an absolutely stunning penthouse, but it's around. And so you're saying that when you started, you used some of these listing websites, but now you don't use any of them anymore yet. Basically, you've got so many customers from the past, so much mouth-to-mouth advertising and people who maybe organically find your website. When I don't know if you Google apartment rental uh, in Panama, maybe your website shows up. Yep. Um, The first stage of that listing site independence framework that I mentioned earlier, which we talk about so often on VRMB, is called give it a go. It's utilizing all of the listing sites out there to get as many inquiries and bookings as you possibly can. When you find that you want to explore beyond the walls of those listing sites, when you recognize that those listing sites really only represent one pillar that you're depending on, you begin looking outside of those walls. But you take everything that you have earned up until that moment and you keep all those listing sites going. Uh, That's kind of the beauty of this framework is that each phase is built on top of the last. So you use your Airbnb inquiries, you use your VRBO and your HomeAway inquiries to form those relationships. Uh, If you do have the pleasure of hosting a guest, they go into another level of intimacy in your marketing uh, engine. Uh, But yeah, we stopped using listing sites about four years ago. Um, I just find it um, annoying. The way that a listing site overnight could decide that you don't get the guest's email address anymore. I find it um, unsafe as as an owner and manager um, that you don't get access to the guest's direct uh, payment transaction. Just sheerly in terms of building something sustainable that lasts, it's not dependable to have all of these kind of little inconsistencies that you're relying on. So when we felt it was time, We took our listings down off those listing sites. I may have one floating out there still, but none of our bookings or inquiries come from them. Um, I think eventually you reach a critical mass that you're not depending on them as much. And you don't freak out when Airbnb changes the commission fee or when HomeAway changes the ranking algorithm. I just have to say I'm not up to date on those changes because it doesn't concern me. Right. And everybody books on your website. You have your own booking engine. Yeah. And like you asked earlier, and I think I might have skirted the question. There's so many booking softwares out there 
that are made specifically for vacation rentals. I could probably list off 20 to you right now. Um, they cover a gamut of features. Um, they are incredibly easy to use. It's as simple as embedding a little bit of website code um, that basically if you're using something like I'm using, which is called Reservation Key, very, very inexpensive. It's like 10 bucks a month or something like that for a property or two. Um, it shows as a live calendar on your website. You buy what's called an SSL certificate, which allows people to book with their credit card online without freaking out that someone's stealing it. Um, it has the live calendar. It has the payment form. It has um, built into it uh, mechanisms that trigger actions in our backend. So when someone books, my manager is able to see that they have booked. They will automatically receive a thank you for conf uh, your confirmation email. They will several days later receive a, we are getting excited about your visit. Here's some recommended reading. And ultimately when the guest arrives, um, we are able to really determine the kind of automation that they receive both during their stay and after their departure. So for us, the booking software is one of those things that when we did finally go from Excel documents to a, a proprietary piece of software, you could never go back. You never quite recognize how much time you're wasting and how silly it is to be manually doing all this stuff. Um, and again, I, there's a, so many of these softwares out there and they're all, well, they're not all. A lot of them are really, really good and inexpensive. So it's one of those things that after you're comfortable with your name, after you're comfortable with a custom email address, once you've purchased a domain, once you've built a website, and you're finally getting ready to graduate to that next stage, you simply can insert your booking software and boom, you're up and running. Now, I imagine there, there's probably a time where you're taking bookings on your website, but you're still taking bookings from listing sites as well. Like, How do you make sure that's, that's all in sync? A lot of the booking softwares have these channel manager functionalities that allow you to, um, I, I'm, I'm going to um, probably mess this up, but something related to the APIs, <laughs> that's all I know. And it basically allows you to, with the click of one button, to change the prices on all the listing sites that right. you use. I know that Airbnb just announced 10 new uh, relationships with um, vacation rental softwares. Um, but I think in general, you try to streamline your time and energy down to as few platforms as possible. And if you're choosing the right piece of software, it does all of the um, whatever stuff for you. Right. Yeah. I, I can't describe that any better just because it's over my head. <laughs> yeah, I know, the, I know of one... Uh piece of software it's called booking sync uh, i think that's i don't know exactly how expensive it is but it might be a little bit expensive for one listing but definitely if you have multiple listings it's probably worth it and i i know a lot of these softwares they can connect to the listing site i don't know if the listing site can also connect to the the booking engine in your website so you might still have to manually sort of block the dates on airbnb or on vrbo but uh at least it's uh it makes it uh uh, manageable. I know uh, Seb from Booking Sync. He was actually here in Casco at the end of last year. Okay. He came to visit. Um, and I do not know uh, exactly whether it, it's working both ways with that at that technology. But I do know that someone listening to this podcast is going to jump in the comments section and answer it for us. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about. Now, you invited me a few days ago. You invited me to a, a meeting with a lot of people in the community in the neighborhood here and you talked about your nonprofit, which is called esperanza which to my understanding it means hope is that right your understanding is right okay great and Senis is not that bad i guess <laughs> um anyway uh it's uh, i'll let you explain what it is because I, I was really impressed with uh with the work that you're doing here you've, you've had some really good results so, so tell us about uh, esperanza yeah, thanks. Esperanza is very close to my heart. Oftentimes, I find myself working more on it than like my business, but it's very much a part of the neighborhood. Um, it is quite technically a gang intervention and reintegration program. When I first arrived in Casco Viejo, the neighborhood was ridden with gang violence. This is street gangs, young guys who are born wrong place, wrong time, and basically do whatever they can to survive. Uh, that is not so conducive to, like, tourism, especially when you have uh, bullets flying uh, and guests wandering into dark areas which are not safe. Um, so my partner uh, in the program and myself put together 
a team, primarily using experts who have been doing this type of gang intervention, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, sociologists from the government, individuals who had this type of experience with gangs uh, in the past. And since we started, which was officially three years ago, but kind of the relationship building had been taking place many years before that, we have demobilized, uh, we have intervened three of the four active gangs here in Casco Viejo. Um, 43 of those collective former gang members are now graduated. 74% of them are working. So we have individuals who are working in traditional uh, hotels and cafes and and bars and restaurants. And then we also have this kind of unique um, sidetrack for anyone who has an entrepreneurial uh, drive. These are traditionally the leaders of the gangs who don't want to go work for anyone else. And we found that they have inherent entrepreneurial type tendencies. Their skills and their strengths are not terribly unlike what you and I recognize in a lot of other small businessmen that we meet. They're hustlers and they're really smart. And in a lot of cases, they're manipulators. And they're just, they know how to lead. Um, and we found that when directed, when focused in a pro-social way, those very strengths, including the strengths that make a gang a gang, the very dynamics that keep a unit together can actually be utilized and taken advantage of in a beautiful way. And what Esperanza has accomplished to date um, is not just a new type of integration for marginalized groups, uh, but also just a style of thinking. We find that all of our graduates tend to prefer now and understand how to solve their own problems as opposed to pointing the finger at the government, at a rival gang member, at uh, a rich neighbor who has more money than they do. And this is kind of where I find my worlds intersect. I find that in the world of vacation rentals, the moment, the very second, and I can oftentimes pinpoint it, that an owner or manager goes from I hate VRBO because they changed the pricing structure, or I can't stand HomeAway is doing this, or Airbnb is trying to monopolize the industry. The moment they go from that to, you know what, I'm going to take advantage of what I have here, but at the same time, I'm going to begin building my own thing and solving my own problem without pointing the finger at anyone else. Everything changes, and they fly. Oftentimes, these folks have inside of them everything that they need, almost always. And the moment they turn that corner, without any real experience, as long as they have the right community, as long as they have the right tools and the resources and, and mentors to walk them through, they fly. And that's for me what makes the vacation rental industry great. It's what makes Esperanza and Casco Viejo very, very a beautiful thing. Awesome. And, and so there's, there's only one gang to go. And uh, yeah, how long do you figure it will take to uh, clean that up? So one of the tricky things about this type of business is that you need their full voluntary interest before you begin. We found that if you're trying to present an opportunity to someone who doesn't want it, it very rarely works. So we have been fortunate enough for each of our ensuing cohorts to raise their hand actually and say, that rival group right there, we want the opportunity that they got. And very luckily, um, we've had the second and third group raise their hand and say that. We have the fourth group who is now very persistently raising their hand and in a lot of cases text messaging saying we want this intervention, we want this chance, which is an incredible thing to have a gang asking for an intervention. But we also have now have a fifth group and it means that we have a lot of work to do. Um, it means that when these individuals are calling for assistance, you really need to go into action. Um, so we never think that the entire project will be quote-unquote complete in the same way that the neighborhood of Casco Viejo will never be complete. These types of organizations and communities are always evolving and changing and shifting and, and growing. Um, but yeah, we have two very big interventions that we are preparing right now. have very fortunately an amazing team that we can now count on. We also have this incredible neighborhood that's willing to support every step that we make. And I think we're planning on ending the podcast today with a bit of an essence from Esperanza, no? Exactly, yeah. Should we share what we're about to do? Yeah, well, before we do that, uh, we've mentioned a lot of things in this in this episode. We mentioned your vacation rental business, Los Cuatro Tulipanos. You got it, Tulipanes. Tulipanes, you got okay. It. So that's um, 
let's mention the links so that if people want to have more information. So for people who want to stay in Panama City, if they want to stay at one of your apartments, what should they do? Um, I would try to spell it out for you long form, but if you just type into Google for tulips, you will very clearly find us, uh, our website, you'll find our trip advisor ranking, which um, has lots of amazing things to say. Um, you will not find us on VRBO or HomeAway, unfortunately, uh, but it's a very easy way to go about getting a hold of us. There's a live reservation calendar and a little booking form. Um, the Vacation Rental Marketing blog is also a real simple one to remember. Just type in vrmb.com, Vacation Rental Marketing blog, vrmb.com, into the, your domain uh, browser. Not to be confused with VRBO. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> but I needed the acronym to be uh, to be speaking at the same table, you know, so I invested in that four-letter domain, vrmb.com. Uh, and you just type in your email and you'll and begin... People can get information about this four-stage process that you yeah. were talking about earlier? 98% of what I put together is free, and it's both on the, the VRMB website, uh, and it's built into almost everything that we do. Uh, up in the top menu, you'll find a link that's called Learning Paths. One of the things that we discovered is that the biggest obstacle to actually effectuating change in these vacation rental owners and managers in their learning process is overkill is a blog that just has all kinds of information that applies to all kinds of owners and managers that ranges from simple getting started to advanced search engine optimization. So the framework itself is now the structure of the website and the learning paths are broken down corresponding to the framework. So you'll find those four main uh, stages. Uh, there's also a little workshop that you can do and take that listing site independent self grader and identify where you fall. And if nothing else, it's a great free exercise that allows you to determine whether or not this is something that you'd like to explore further. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to do it. Uh, <laughs> the last thing that uh, we talked about was, of course, uh, the Esperanza project. So if people want to find out more about that, where can they go? Yep. Our website for that is Esperanza, E-S-P-E-R-A-N-Z-A-S-V-C, socialventure.club.org. Awesome. And on our website, we've got a bunch of amazing blog posts. We've got where we've been featured in the press. Um, and we have all kinds of really inspiring stories by young guys who are really doing it. Awesome. Of course, I'll put all these links in the show notes so people don't have to remember them all. Um, so to end this episode in a very appropriate way, we're now going to have somebody who was part of the project, I understand. No, so, so these guys, so we are right now, just to remind folks, in the equivalent of like a ghetto recording studio. Uh, we are in a soundproofed room that has felt all around. It's got an exposed uh, halogen light up top. It's got um, some appearingly very advanced recording software. And there's two young guys who are not actually Esperanza graduates, but they are actually recording in this studio, which is owned by an Esperanza graduate. So Nico Mercado, one of his business that he launched is called Super Studio. And he records his own music. He also rents out the studio to other rappers and musicians who don't can't really afford the real studio costs. Uh, and I just happened to be passing by here when you said, can we record? And I asked Nico if you wouldn't mind. He said, absolutely not. And when we came in and began actually getting ready for this, we asked, you and I, Jasper, to these two guys if they would like to do a little intro and or outro. So that would be what they heard at the beginning of the podcast and perhaps the outro as well. Let's do it. So let's see what they come up with. Do you want to be want to do some rapping? Uh, sure. <laughs> the All is down to rap. The traveling Dutchman is rapping. Amigos, estamos listos? Yeah, yo, yo, this is Ferdinand in the microphone. I want to say to be respectful for all my people. Get paid for your pass from Panama City. Wagwenan, que lo que, que lo que. Ha Yeah. Wagwenan. Wolan, wolan, wolan. The one for the girl then. Con la mano en la cadera y moviendo el bati. Ella tiene su pollito y me está mirando a mí. 
El Bela Cielki. Conmigo ella se va y a mí me gusta tu meneo constante. Yo no sé si tú aguantes cuando yo te ponga de atrás para adelante. Tú estás ahogando mami con el cantante. Y tú no tienes miedo que te ponga el calmante. Mami, mami, pónmelo ahí. Mami, pónmelo ahí. Quebralo, Fabri, Fabri. Quebralo, Fabri, Fabri, girl. Pónmelo ahí, mami, pónmelo ahí. Pónmelo ahí, mami, pónmelo ahí. Si lo tuyo es silicona, quebralo, Fabri, Fabri. Si lo tuyo es silicona, quebralo. Porque tú sabes, menía. Tu chapa no está guay. Tú no eres como la envidiosa que nada más sabe menía. Tú no eres como esa yale que le gusta calentar y la comida no se quiere refinar. A mí me gusta esa yale de la city. Entonces, hace si rica polla que tiene su chorchuchón. La que vive en la tanda. Se ponen de espalda y le piten al demente que le aplauda su Yo, MTNT Yo, this is Ferdy Ming in the mic From Panama City, you know Guaguenan, que lo que es, que lo que es Gallery for Life, Super Studio Fly with you And they kiss you on the fucking flag too Yeah Dale mami a tal piso Que yo mi mente doy el permiso Y saca la competencia de quicio Ya matándolo